Psalm 63, verse 6 through 11. And when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory, but the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. The famous Greek mathematician Archimedes was solving a geometry problem when his home city was attacked by the Roman army in 212 B.C. As General Marcellus claimed Syracuse for Rome. Archimedes was engrossed in his work. We have the history of this event recorded by the Roman historian Plutarch, who wrote around A.D. 100. He describes it this way. Archimedes, who was then, as fate would have it, intent upon working out some problem, by a diagram, and having fixed his mind alike and his eyes upon the subject of his speculation, he never noticed the incursion of the Romans, nor even that his own city was taken. In this transport of study and contemplation, a soldier unexpectedly coming up to him commanded Archimedes to follow to Marcellus. That's the general. But Archimedes declined to do it before he had finished the problem. The soldier, enraged, drew his sword and ran him through. Now, I would bet it is unlikely any of you will be so captivated by geometry you will miss the war. Yet I would suggest that when we are in a spiritually dry and weary land, some of us are totally unaware and unprepared for the spiritual battles in which we are embroiled by virtue of our allegiance to Jesus Christ. We know the thirst. We know that the land is dry but we may be oblivious to the enemies stealing our water. Psalm 63 reaches out and grabs our attention by graphically depicting the raging battle and by revealing that a fully satisfied thirst comes only to those who stand with Christ in the midst of the fray. Now this is our final week in Psalm 63, I have sought to use the theme of thirsting through the whole to teach our souls the glorious desirability of God. David presses that very idea on us in the first verse. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land. 
The first sermon was an overview of the whole. And I challenged you at that time with the glory of thirsting deeply. It is difficult to even consider in a land of wealth, in a land of consumption. But I asked that we might intentionally deepen our thirst for God by eliminating some of those distractions which we put up in place to prevent ourselves from feeling how deeply we thirst for God. Helen and I once were taken out to a dinner by a couple in in the church, a different church a few years ago. As we drove to the place where the reservations were made, the wife said this, we are going to a great restaurant. I did not eat lunch so that I would be sure and be hungry for the food they will serve. That's it. That's what Psalm 63 is laying before you. At least one aspect of it, it is calling you to the spiritual discipline of being willing to put away some lunches so that you might enjoy God all the more deeply. In the second sermon, we noted the glory of slaking a deep thirst with a great God. We saw there our duties in a land of drought. We are to recognize God's claim on our souls. We are to remember God's covenant redemption. We are to respond to loving God's loving kindness. We do those duties because we believe in the word, not because we always feel the worth of doing them. Last week, the third in the series, we noticed how God's glory and our happiness are united when God is revealed and proven to be the only one who can satisfy sinful, guilty, aching hearts. John Piper reminded us then that this conviction breeds a people who go hard after God. Today is the last in our series. The glory of thirsting no more. The glory of thirsting no more. While we certainly rejoice at the promise of God to fill us with spiritual food as we meditate on His grace, as we remember His favor, as we praise Him through placing our faith in Jesus, we recognize, we recognize that having our souls satisfied is not our universal experience here, is it? Fallen people living in a fallen world often feel very dry spiritually. Fallen people living in a fallen world often feel very dry spiritually. And we have enemies against us, especially the great triumvirate, the world, the flesh, and the devil. They conspire to inundate us with distractions and temptations and even an all-out warfare against our souls to keep us far from God, parched and weary. How wonderful then that the Bible promises us a day when we will thirst no more. Jesus, when he was here, spoke of this with a woman. He said to her, if you knew 
the gift of God. And who I am that says to you, give me a drink. He had asked her for some water from the well. If you knew who I was, if you knew what God offered, if you knew the promise of thirsting no more, then you would have asked of me and I would give you living water. For everyone who drinks of the water that you can get out of the well will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water I give will never be thirsty forever. Now that's a good promise. So how do we get there? Well, one part of that is described in our text today at the end of Psalm 63. It is not the ending we might expect. How could imprecatory prayers, how could praying for curses to fall down on our enemies have anything to do with our souls finding satisfaction in God? Well, to find out, notice first this. In order to glory in the promise of thirsting no more, we must have our vision of God enlarged. Look again at verses 9 to 11. David has prayed this beautiful prayer. Remember, this is one that the early church said should be sung every day. And he concludes it with this. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory. But the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. Now the Bible is full of surprises. It is not the sanitized book sometimes people expect. Jesus is not always meek and mild. He rebukes sharply. He calls his enemies snakes and sons of Satan. And he assures us that he will one day separate the godly from the ungodly. And he will cast the uh, uh, evil into hell. He calls them goats. And they will be lost in eternal torment. Likewise, the Bible says that God the Father is not an old dotard overlooking some sins and forgetting others. He is a mighty king. He's a warrior. He is a persistent foe of all evil and of sin. Our family has been reading through Samuel of late. There are some wild things recorded in that book. In one place, God is condemning the sons of Eli because they have not worshipped God properly. And so Eli, kind of late to the goal of parenting, decides he's going to correct his two boys. He says this, the text says this, Eli was very old, but he kept hearing all that his sons were doing in Israel, how they lay with the women, these are prostitutes, serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So out at the front of the church building, they're prostitutes, and Eli, the pastor's sons, are there sleeping with them. And he said to them, why do you do this kind of thing? If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? But they would not listen to their father. And then one of those verses that makes me scratch my head. Because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. 
Does our vision of God have any place for it to be His will to put people to death? Now, some people say, well, that's the Old Testament God. The New Testament God is way sweeter since He took His Prozac in the intertestamental period. But yesterday, I was reading in 1 Corinthians. Listen to what it says. Anyone who eats and drinks the Lord's Supper without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are, are, are ill and weak, and some of you are dead. Because if you judged yourself, you would not need to be judged by God, but God judges you and disciplines you so that you will not be condemned with the world. 1 Corinthians 11 is saying there, sometimes God has to kill His people, otherwise they're going to apostatize completely. That's a strange idea for many people. It's easy, it's enjoyable to see God exalted in the salvation of sinners. But we are less likely to imagine His glory in the damnation of the unrepentant. When Pastor Phil and I did a radio show a few years ago, a call-in talk radio show, I think this was the idea that most infuriated the listeners to KCRO. They knew God was glorified in the salvation of sinners, and they knew God could not be glorified in the damnation of the unrepentant. But Romans 9 says this, When Rebecca had conceived her children, though they had not yet been born, listen to this, they had not yet done anything good or bad, but in order that God's purposes and election might continue, not by works, but because of His call, she is told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now Paul anticipates what we will say then. That's not fair, is it? What shall we say then? Is there injustice? By no means. For God says to Moses, I have mercy on those I want to have mercy on. I have compassion on those I want to have compassion on. So it depends not on the human will or your exertion, but it all depends upon God who has mercy. And then the condemnation of Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show my power in you and my name might be proclaimed on all the earth. So he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Here's the first point. The promise of thirsting no more depends on the destruction of God's enemies because God's enemies delight themselves in bringing God's people to despair. You cannot get to a place where Jesus says you will thirst no more because the enemies of God are always trying to bring God's people to despair unless they are destroyed. And so if we are going to believe in the God of the Bible, we must believe that He will not rest until He has made His enemies a footstool for His feet. Our vision of God must be bigger than it would naturally be in order to thirst no more. Then second, In order to glory in the promise of thirsting no more, we must have our vision of evil enlarged. Look at verse 9 again. But those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. 
Joe Fisher is a self-described new age guru. And one of the things he says he does is he contacts spirits through channeling. And he wrote a book about it. And he explains in his book about all these spirits he's contacting. He says, I just assumed all these spirits were really nice. They were benign. And so I got all of this list of things when I contacted these spirits. They told me all these things. and I wrote them all down. And then I went and investigated them. And I found out they were lying to me. <laughs> so Joe Fisher's book, he says, I am shocked to have to admit that, but there may be evil spirits in the world. I don't know whether Fisher contacted any spirits or just ate too many sausages the night before. <laughs> but this we know, there is an evil spirit. There is a devil. There is a malevolent enemy of all who love God and of love His Son, Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on verse 9, says of the enemies of David, they would not merely injure but utterly ruin him. Some of you know the gospel tract that says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, this passage says God hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. The enemies of God will destroy us in any way possible. You know that. You should know that from 1 Peter 5.8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Unlike our silly caricatures, he does not wear a red suit and wield a pitchfork. Instead, the Bible tells us he even disguises himself as an angel to more easily deceive and therefore damage you. Notice in verse 9, David tells us two things specifically about our enemies. First, in the first half of verse 9, they seek to destroy. The New King James translates it, seek my life. The, the word in Hebrew is to seek my soul, to destroy it. And Matthew Henry, commenting on that, says, These men envied and hated David for his wisdom, piety, and usefulness, and they sought to destroy his soul by banishing him from God's ordinances, which are its nourishment and support. Now, you might not see it all in Psalm 63, verse 9, but 1 Samuel 26, did I put that verse on my handout? I did. 1 Samuel 26 is right there on your handout. Notice here, David has come to Saul, which are, are the events that Psalm 63 is about. He's come to Saul, and he's asking Saul, why do you keep chasing me around the country trying to kill me? So it's 1 Samuel 26, 19. David says, now, therefore, let it please my Lord the King to hear the words of me, your servant. If Jehovah, the Lord, has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is the children of men, may they be cursed before Jehovah. For they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, and catch this last phrase, go serve other gods. See, it's not... The enemies of God are not content to run you through with a sword. They want you to apostatize. They want your soul to be dry. They want to drive you out of the presence of God. They want to discourage you from attending worship. They want to convince you that you are too guilty to receive the grace of Jesus in the Lord's Supper. They want to 
urge you not to lift up your hearts in song and praise to God. They are not content merely to take your life. They want to turn you from God himself. They press David toward idolatry because they want him to sin. They want to enslave his souls. Now, you may feel, you may feel living in the midst of all of the wealth and comfort that surrounds us that such danger is not in any way in real in your life. But I would ask you to be assured of this. If you take Psalm 63 seriously, if God convinces you of the surpassing desirability of knowing Him, if you are one who at the end of this series says, I'm going to either make if you've never done it before, or I'm going to renew my commitment to seek the Lord earnestly because it is He for whom my soul longs. If you make that commitment, if you renew that covenant, you will find Satan going hard after you. You will find his devices to be dangerous and destructive. You will find that he is willing to use any weapon. He does not fight fair. He will use anything he can to drive you away from the joy of God's presence into the desert of barrenness. That's the first thing David says in verse 9 about our enemies. They seek to destroy. But then second, notice in verse 9b, they shall go to the lower parts of the earth. They themselves are destined to destruction. Charles Spurgeon, as always, he writes so beautifully and graphically. Destroyers shall be destroyed. Those who hunt souls shall be themselves the victims. Into the pits which they dug for others, they shall fall themselves. The slayers shall be slain, and the grave shall cover them. The hell which they in their curse invoked for others shall shut its mouth upon them. Every blow aimed against the godly will recoil on the persecutor. He who smites a believer drives a nail in his own coffin. You need to know this. Some of the dryness in our souls comes from our own sin. We have not sought the Lord as we should. It's our fault. So coming back to God means confessing that sin, turning away from the idols, putting aside these things that we have used to distract us from our soul's thirst and coming back to the Father of living water. Some of our dryness comes because we live in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Fallen people living in a fallen world often have dry souls. But you will not have the full picture, nor will you be able to come to a biblical solution until you recognize that you have enemies putting salt in your water and sand in your bread. It is not all our sin, though it is part of that, but thirsting no more requires that you see how terribly evil are the enemies of God's people. Only such a vision of evil will move us to pray and to labor and to take our stand with King Jesus. Then third, 
In order to glory in the promise of thirsting no more, we must have our vision of the battle enlarged. Look at verse 10. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. Now David here makes a plan to see his enemies run through with a very real sword of steel. I know this is going to disappoint some of you, especially the young boys, but that's not our privilege on this side of the cross. The battle we wage wage is a spiritual battle, not a physical one. We do not win the victory by cutting the heads off the pagans. But there is real armor. There is a real combat. There are real casualties, and there are real victories. And those of you who desire to no longer thirst must not studiously avoid the war. But you must follow your captain into the heart of the battle. Dr. William Thompson describes the jackals in verse 10b. These, it's a, I tried to explain to my kids this morning what, is, what David is saying here in verse 10b. We're sitting there at the breakfast table. I said, imagine looking out there in the neighbor's yard and there are 20 bodies of dead people lying down and they're ravenous wolves eating their flesh. That's exactly what David says, I want to happen to my enemies. <laughs> Dr. William Thompson describes this, these jackals. These sinister, guilty, woe-begone brutes, when pressed with hunger, gather in gangs among the graves and yell in rage and fight like fiends over their midnight orgies. But on the battlefield is their great carnival. Oh, let me never even dream that anyone dear to me has fallen by the sword and lies there to be torn and gnawed at and dragged about by these hideous howlers. He's saying that even in his time, bands of jackals roamed the land and would dig up, exhume dead bodies and consume them. And that's what David is asking what happened to his enemies. Now, such an image makes us recoil, but it realistically portrays the nature of the fight. My, my family enjoys, I, I'll, this is time for true confession. I better drink a cup of water before this. We watch Star Trek. thing that's so fun about that show to us is that in the end, no matter how terrible the enemy is, they're all converted into friends because of the compassionate ministry of the psychologist Diana Troy and the wise, the wise words of Captain Jean-Luc Picard. It's what I fantasize about being, always knowing the exact right thing to say to make every problem go away. And I have uh, Sigmund Freud there to help me in case I don't know. <laughs> that is until they meet the Borg. I think that the writers of the series wrote themselves into a corner when they met the Borg because the Borg were unlike any other enemy. They could not be reasoned with. They will not be domesticated. They are not to be controlled. 
The battle with the Borg was a battle to death. And if you know the story, hopefully not all of us do, but I do, (laughs) in their first contact with the Borg, the way that the story ends is not by victory, but it's by the hand of God reaching down, taking their starship, and transporting them into an entirely another place. They have no hope against this enemy. And is that not exactly what David is saying here about his enemies? You have enemies like that that will not be reasoned with. They will only be defeated by King Jesus. William Gurnall, in his book, Christian in Complete Armor, which he wrote in 1662 and managed to come up with 1,200 pages of six-point font, describes to his congregation how awesome is the battle in which they fight. He says this in the introduction. The subject, you tell it's a Puritan writer. The first thing they tell you is how terrible the book is. The subject of this treatise is solemn, a war between the saint and Satan. And that so bloody a one that the cruelest which was ever fought by men will be found but sport and child's play to this. It is a spiritual war that you shall read of, and that not a history of what was fought many ages past and is now over, but of what is now doing. The tragedy is a present acting And that not at the farthest end of the world, but what concerns thee and everyone that reads it. The stage whereupon this war is fought is every man's own soul. There is no neutral ground in this war. The whole world is engaged in the quarrel either for God against Satan or for Satan against God. Psalm 63 verse 10. Ask you, will you fight in the battle. It is not a place for cowards or pretenders in religion. It will be neither cozy nor comfortable. But if you are ever to get to the place where your thirst is fully satisfied, you must, to borrow the words of Jean-Luc Picard, engage the Borg. Then fourth, in order to glory in the promise of thirsting no more, we must have our vision of ourselves in Christ enlarged. Look at what David prays in verse 11. But the king shall, that's future, the king shall rejoice rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory, but the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. When we are on the run, when we are spiritually dry, when we are doubtful and fearful of our adoption by the Father, these are hard words to pray. We feel neither confident of glory nor of asking God to silence our enemies. And on top of all of that, how do we look forward to the day when we will thirst no more when that day depends upon the damnation of others? Well, such is possible only when we consider ourselves alive in Christ. Otherwise, if you pray prayers against your enemies, they will be arrogant and vindictive. You will become arrogant and vindictive, the very opposite of the intention of the one who said to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He makes his son 
rise on both the just and the unjust. He sends rain on the evil and on the good. So how do we do this? How do we bring it together? Let me give you four simple things. Well, they're simple to say. They're not simple to do. (laughs) But four directions to get you started. First, we pray Christ's words against Christ's enemies, not our own words. So looking at verses 9 through 11, we say, Lord, may all those who oppose you be brought down. Either convert them or confuse them so they are either with you or do no harm against your people. We pray Christ's words against Christ's enemies. Then second, we put on the armor of Ephesians 6 and stand with Jesus in the battle. Third, we labor for the advancement of God's kingdom, struggling mightily against our Three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And fourth, we commit ourselves to study both His Word and the work of the Spirit throughout the history of the church. That history will teach us much about the battles we face. Two Six-year-old boys were arguing after church. One of the boys said, Oh, there isn't a devil. The other was upset by that and said, What do you mean there isn't a devil? It talks about him all the way through the Bible. The first boy said, Oh, that's not true. You know, it's just like Santa Claus. The devil turns out to be your daddy. (laughs) Let's hope not. Martin Luther said this, Each Christian should be so armed that he himself is sure of his belief and of the doctrine and is so equipped with sayings from the Word of God that he can stand against the devil and defend himself even while men seek to lead him astray. Every one of us is to be so armed that you are sure of yourself, sure of your beliefs, sure of the doctrines, and are so equipped with sayings from the Word of God that you can stand against the devil and defend yourself, even when men seek to lead you astray. So when you feel barren and dry, as David did when he wrote and sung Psalm 63, The answer begins where Psalm 63 begins. Seek the Lord. Seek God earnestly and early. But do not neglect to take up the battle against your enemies. For he, the enemy, seeks to drive you into a dry and weary land where there is no water. Father, we thank you for this promise that Even while we are in times of spiritual drought, you come to us, you teach us about your promises, you protect us from your enemies, you enable us to feed on you, to drink at the fountain of living water, which is Christ, and be fully satisfied as with fatness and marrow. We bless you that you do all of these things for us because it brings us delight but in so doing and teaching our souls that you are the one for which we long, for whom we long, and you are the only one that can satisfy us 
you in fact are glorified. And so your glory and our happiness are united for the praise of Christ and for the blessing of your people. And so we love you, Father, and ask that you would teach us to hunger and thirst for you and to seek you all of our days. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.